This episode brought to you by LawPay. LawPay makes it easy for lawyers to get paid. Hi, I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and you're listening to the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, a podcast about lawyers' personal and professional lives. As part of this special series, we're taking a look back at how various areas of the law have changed and what that means for people who are in those practice areas. On today's show, we're discussing federal juries of two Chicago trial lawyers, Ron Safer and Jim Sotos. Ron used to chair the criminal division of the Chicago U.S. Attorney's Office and is now a partner with Riley Safer, Holmes, and Kinsella, where he does civil work and white-collar defense. Jim has a sole practice, and he defends municipalities on civil rights claims. He also provides defense for law enforcement accused of misdeeds and has argued two U.S. Supreme Court cases. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Stephanie. It's good to be here. Thank you for having us. What I want to ask both of you first, and Jim, maybe you want to take this, I feel like with federal juries, there's been so much discussion in the past few years about police misconduct. And I look at like the death of George Floyd and others that really seem to touch a lot of people that maybe didn't think about it before the past five or 10 years. And maybe some people are thinking about race who, are, in a way, they hadn't before. Have you found that to be true when you're in front of a jury? And have some things that you might think about uh, someone in your jury pool, your impressions of them might be different. You can't just base it on where they live and, you know, where they went to school. Yeah, you know, Stephanie, I would say certainly over the last 10 to 15 years, um, we've seen the continued polarization of views towards the police in our jury pools. People through those years have had stronger and stronger feelings. I think that the uh, George Floyd case and the aftermath of George Floyd, you know, to put it in COVID terms, can be best described as like a booster to those, the polarization of those emotions. Um, The one really strong message, I think, from the George Floyd case that differentiated it from prior um, highly publicized police misconduct cases, like going all the way back even to Rodney King in the 1990s, is that the the message that came through in the George Floyd case is that young people in particular could no longer stand on the sidelines. They were expected to take a position. You know, athletes throughout the country were were forced to decide, are we going to kneel or not kneel for the national anthem? And I think that the biggest takeaway I get from all of that is that going forward, it's less likely that younger jurors are going to be accurately perceived to be the the less strong jurors, the jurors who are most least likely to sway the the rest of the jury. So that's typically been a perception that we've always had in police cases over the years is that the younger jurors would typically have more liberal attitudes, more anti-police attitudes, but they really didn't have the kind of strong personalities for the most part that were going to sway some of the other jurors. And I think that that's going to change going forward. That's interesting. If I'm understanding you correctly, instead of assuming like an an older, usually male, oftentimes white man on the jury would be selected as a foreman or he'd be the one people will listen to. You're saying that it might be the younger person now who becomes a foreman. Yeah. You know, my sense is they're going to be much less likely to take a back seat. And it's funny you mentioned the older you know, jurors typically, like on the police side of these kinds of cases, 
um, the defense lawyers would look for like a core group of three or four strong, older, more conservative jurors to kind of be that strength of the jury and and hope that the younger jurors would, while they might not agree, would ultimately fall in line over the course of deliberations. Um, my expectation is that that is going to change. I've even found that um, in my discussions with younger people, friends of my um, you know, four children who are much more willing to express their views with strength and they're much less likely to be swayed. You know, they won't uh, defer to the wisdom of the elders the way they may have, at least to some degree in the past. Ron, what do you think? I agree with Jim that this has both generational impacts and, you know, there's no question that uh, we are a polarized society. One other aspect of of the George Floyd case, uh, all of the aftermath, is that racial issues are now in the forefront of everyone's mind. So during jury selection, it was always a challenge to dig out people's feelings on these issues. You know, Black Lives Matter is relatively recent. Blue Lives Matter, those kind of issues, and I use those only as headlines for the underlying thoughts. It used to be difficult to unearth those kind of opinions. Now it's at the forefront of everybody's mind. And young people, old people, they have thought about it. And they are willing to discuss openly and honestly, or at least openly, their feelings on these issues. And that's a big difference in jury selection from current recent years to past years. So are you saying then that it sounds like it's easier to see where a a potential juror is at in terms of where, what you want, but also um, I think sometimes people might express that they're at a certain spot, but when it really comes down to how they really feel, that may not match what they're saying or, you know, what their lapel pin says or (laughs) That may be. It's always difficult. You know, that's why I say it's open, always difficult to be candid about these very emotional issues. But I think we've gotten a lot better at that as a society and having the discourse. And then, you know, it's always difficult or, or perilous to transport those thoughts into predicting what a how a jury might receive the evidence in your case. As somebody who has tried these cases for the plaintiffs uh, against municipalities, I have found people who are thoughtful and who say that we uh, respect the police officers, we respect the job that they are doing, we think that they have been victimized by our society to an extent. If those are thoughtfully, openly expressed, I often have no problem with sitting these jurors because I think I share those views and I share those views openly with the jury and say, look, you know, the one of the reasons why these cases are so important is because police officers, the vast majority of them carry out their job with integrity and honesty. And 
these people who do not hurt those people more than anybody in our society. So, uh, you know, I think we have an open and honest, more open and honest dialogue with jurors. It's always difficult figuring out how to translate that into how a jury might react to the evidence. Do either of you have any recent stories where you were going through the pool and you had one impression on someone just based on their appearance and their zip code, and then it turned out to be radically different after, and I, I apologize, you can talk to the jurors in federal court, right, or the potential jurors. Can you talk to them or the judge does it? The judge does it. Okay. Did anything come out that just surprised the heck out of you about someone that was in your pool? Always. I mean, you always <laughs> uh, draw at one opinion, a blink reaction by looking at somebody. And speaking for myself, I am invariably wrong about that blink opinion. Yeah, I mean, me me too. Every Every trial, you have a perception. You try to form these perceptions based on the back and forth. And as Ron said, in federal court, the judges typically pick the juries and you don't question them and you try and form these judgments. And then later on, you, you know, you often find out that you had it diametrically opposed. It's going to be interesting to see as long as we live through this pandemic, how our perceptions are going to be shaped when we're, we don't get the cues that we used to get when you can't really see people, you can't see their facial reactions. You know, so much of what we do when we're sitting at the table is trying to watch people without them knowing that we're actually watching them to see how they reacted to that particular exhibit or that piece of testimony. Did they snarl? Did they raise their eyebrows? Well, now you can see the eyebrows, but you can't see the whole face. And um, it's going to make it that much more difficult to try and get those kinds of judgments correct. That is such a good, such a good point. I absolutely find that to be the case. It just tried a case tried two cases during the pandemic where all of the jurors are masked. Uh, And, you know, although I've long lobbied for a scoreboard to be installed in the over the jury, they haven't done it yet. Uh, But one of the indicators that I've always found as to whether a juror is with you or not is humor. I found if you say something that's genuinely humorous, uh, a juror who is with you is more apt to smile. Now you cannot see whether or not they're smiling in in addition to their reaction to specific pieces of evidence. Very difficult to read a jury. What's more, they're spread out across the courtroom. There are three jurors. Well, so Rod, I'm curious. So for these past two uh, trials that you did, did you have your second and third chairs? I mean, if you don't mind, how did you guys discuss how you would look at what was you do you mind sharing us what your strategy was for reading body language? Because I would imagine you're zeroing in on eyes to see if the eyes are smiling. That would be one. Yes. Right. Or were you also if someone was getting really fidgety in their mask, that might be another thing. But do you mind telling us a bit about your team's strategy? No, I don't mind at all. First of all, one of the uh consequences of covid is your whole team is not in the courtroom oh yeah you in, in our last trial we had I, I was able to sit there our client and one other lawyer was in the courtroom period that's it 
So your team is in a remote courtroom watching on on uh, uh, on a camera. But you do read, obviously, there is body language, there are arms crossed, there is turning away, and, and people do turn away from witnesses and towards witnesses, and that's, that's very helpful, and monitoring that is very important. People do smile with their eyes, they, they do frown with their eyes, but it's, it, you know, as I started to say, there were only, two, in our last case, there were three jurors in the box. So most of the jurors are spread out in the in, in the uh, seats for spectators, no spectators anymore. So you can't see them. They're in the back corner of the courtroom and, and you can't read them. Now, our judge had them cycle through. So you got a, a, a view of everybody at the time, but it's impossible to read uh, jurors like that. Has anybody filed a motion to sit them in a way you can read them better that you've heard of? Good luck with Chief Judge Paul Myers, very uh, focused on this issue. And <laughs> he's very focused on making it safe for jurors who are compelled to come to federal court. And uh, such a motion would not succeed. Well, so, and it sounds like if your team was watching this remotely, you would have whoever's in the courtroom would have a better view of the jurors than your remote team, right? Because it's not like there's a professional cameraman who's zooming in. So it's on you. Yeah, they don't see the jurors at all. How do you communicate with them in that setup? Do you text? You can text, you communicate at breaks, but it's very difficult. It's a huge handicap. And Jim, I think you said that you haven't you haven't tried a case yet during the pandemic. Is that right? Yeah, no, I haven't. Uh, that's why this is all very uh, interesting to me. I We did not try a case during the pandemic. We actually have six that are scheduled between six federal jury trials are scheduled between March and September of next year. So maybe you should ask me again in October. But um, <laughs> Well, do you think, I mean, is that part of the backlog? Is that maybe because the governments don't really, I mean, a lot of people don't, from what I've heard, a lot of cases are just being churned, especially if you're the defense. People don't want to go to trial right now, but I don't know when things are going to change. Yeah, I think it's I think it is the backlog. And, um, you know, coming out of it now, we just have a lot of cases that have been gearing up and gearing up and they're all getting set at the same time. And um, I, I don't know how we're going to try all six between March and September. And um you know, some cases settle, but I'm sure several of these will will be tried. And I think that's it. It's primarily a function of uh, the backlog. And the courts are now saying, OK, it's time. Let's go. So that's where we're at. Should be a very interesting year. And I don't know where we're going to be in terms of the pandemic and the kind of restrictions that Ron's been describing are very, very interesting to me. And I don't know how each court is going to approach that differently, depending on which jurisdiction we're in as well. Do either of you think, going back to what we talked about, about um, a lot of people in the jury pool's views on police misconduct now and how that's changed, I was curious if maybe municipalities might be more likely to settle? Or on the other hand, uh, would the plaintiffs be asking for so much that they just can't settle? The issue of settlement is obviously always fascinating because both sides always say the same thing. Well, we would be happy to settle if, and then the issue is always, well, what's the number? 
And that's where it typically falls apart. So, you know, with municipalities, I think they look to settle cases the same way I would think most other uh, defendants do in civil cases. The cases are different in some ways. You know, Ron mentioned emotion before. Um, There is a lot of emotion wrapped up in police litigation, uh, particularly the bigger, more more high-profile cases. Um, So I do think that these types of cases do get tried more than just, you know, business disputes and things of that nature. And the larger the case, the more difficult it often is to um, to settle. Um, I haven't seen a change with any of my clients throughout the state of Illinois in terms of their approach to settling over the last year or two, but it's always a challenge. And um, as a trial lawyer, that often makes it interesting because we get to try cases. So, you know, I think I think there's always been issues with settlement that make it more difficult in police cases than other types of cases. You all you have this added element of, especially when they're high profile cases, uh, they can become political footballs. And so that always works its way into the calculus about whether a case should settle or whether it shouldn't. What would, say 10 or 20 years ago, what would be seen as a red flag in a case, either for the plaintiff or defense, that today wouldn't be a red flag? Like maybe a witness's sexual orientation might have been a a red flag. Or, you know, if if he or she had a criminal record. I mean, that could go either way now, I think. What what are some things that maybe are not red flags anymore? I think drug use is something that has become much more acceptable. Uh, Somebody who says, you know, that, oh, yeah, I witnessed this. I had, you know, I had smoked a joint. Uh, 20 years ago, that would have been, oh, well, then you can't testify. Uh, Today, I think it's nobody bets an eye. You know, following up on that, um, I think the difference has become so extreme. um, And as Ron pointed out, 20 years ago, that would be something that the defense would want to emphasize in order to detract from the if it's the plaintiff who was who had been engaged in the drug use in order to detract from their testimony, defense would emphasize it. Now, I think not only do defendants not look to emphasize it because it could they could face a backlash from the jury. They often don't even bring it up. And um, and I think that consistent with that, what I've seen that's different from, let's say, 20 years ago is. You know, the idea that a plaintiff bringing a civil rights case has to be, you know, squeaky clean, even aside from drug use. So if you could find something in the record where that person was not truthful, um, they've made misrepresentations or they outright lied about something. I think there was a time that that was considered a death knell to the plaintiff's case. Um, Juries seem in current times to be much more um, accepting of the fact that people can not always be truthful and that can coexist with police misconduct on the other side. And they can sift through those things to get to the truth of a specific case and not necessarily hold some of those personal foibles, even integrity issues against uh, somebody bringing a case. The other thing that I think is a big change, and you know, Ron, I'm wondering if you've seen this, is uh, there was a time when 
It was always believed that for the police in a police misconduct case, that uh, the less they had in the way of reports or video, the better, because it made them much more difficult to cross-examine. So that was always kind of the mantra. Well, you don't want to create paper because it can create inconsistencies for cross-examination. And I think that always served police pretty well because there was a presumption, I think, in the minds of most people, including jurors, that police were generally telling the truth when they testified, even if they were being accused of serious misconduct. Now I think it's the opposite, that if there are not reports and there are not videos, the jury wants to know why, and there better be a good reason for that. So the burden has kind of flipped, and jurors expect government to affirmatively justify whatever actions they're saying occurred, and they're not as receptive to the argument that, well, the plaintiff has the burden and the plaintiff didn't prove it, so you know, you have to find in favor of the defense. I completely agree with Jim. It, it's a CSI world. Right. So, Jim, I'm curious if what you just said, how much are your clients accepting of that and has it caused them to make changes? That's yeah, a great question, Stephanie, because the answer is it depends on the jurisdiction. You know, the larger, more sophisticated bureaucracies kind of understand that maybe to a fault there's so much paper that they paper everything, but you can still go into smaller towns and other jurisdictions where there's very little paper out there at all, no video. I know of um, one case where there was a um, lengthy police standoff with a criminal suspect for a couple of hours. There was no video of any of that. And so it really depends on where you are. You could have the identical case in, let's say, a place like Chicago, and you'll have boxes of reports and information. And you take that same case and put it in a small downstate Illinois community, and you might have like an an inch thick file and that's it. So the more it is done, the more law enforcement sees it to their advantage. Uh, I was a federal prosecutor at the time that uh, filming, videotaping of confessions was was made mandatory at some of the agencies. They hated that. They resisted it, fought it tooth and nail, said this will uh, chill people. They won't talk to us. This is a disaster. I said, look, this will be your best friend. People confess and then they say, oh, I didn't confess or I was forced to confess or all that. Now it will be on videotape. You will you will be protected against all of those untrue allegations. And I I think history has proved that that's right. And the more documentation, the more tape recorded evidence there is, the better it is for law enforcement. You know, um, following up on that same thing with body cameras, almost the identical issue. Um, And, you know, let's be honest about it. Nobody really wants to have their daily activities recorded. I wouldn't want a camera following me around at work, watching every decision I make, every mistake I make. But when you get past that, um, and and so as a result of that, police, I think like most um, professions, were very, very reluctant to go along with body cameras, and it was kind of forced on them. But what we've seen is that more often than not, much more often than not, those body cameras have helped um, 
the police more than they've brought, they've helped the police, the people who are bringing the cases against the police. Not not always, but that's been true. That's fascinating. And Jib, would you say that your impression is on the defense side of this when the laws required body cams, were you thinking, oh, thank goodness? Or were you a little, a little nervous about it before you knew what would happen? Yeah, you know, I wasn't because I thought that I've, I've been handling these cases for so long. It was my belief that ultimately it would be a good thing for law enforcement. So I actually spent a good deal of time back when um, there was a lot of controversy about who would have body cameras and who wouldn't. And, and a lot of jurisdictions still don't, primarily because of the cost at this point. But um, I spent a good deal of time going throughout the state and advocating for body cameras um, wherever appropriate, because I anticipated that it would have a more positive effect for law enforcement than it than a negative effect. Ron, you were in private practice when these changes came about. Were you like, oh, this will be great? What did you think? I actually was uh, was a prosecutor when they began to come about, and I felt that it was uh, a positive result for everybody uh, because uh, you know, as I, I say, I identify as a prosecutor, uh, even though I've been a defense attorney for a long time now. My experience is that the that the majority of law enforcement officers are trying to do the right thing for the right reasons. And they are helped by body cameras. They're helped by documentation in general. There are, as in any organization, People who will break the rules, who will uh, do things that are, you know, that they don't want on tape and they don't want documented. For those people, the fact that everybody's got a camera now, you know, hopefully chills their conduct. Keep in mind, the cases that Jim and I are trying in court happened, the events of those uh, cases happened 20, you know, 15, 30 years ago, uh, we're not talking about events that are happening now. And hopefully, hopefully everybody is learning from from these cases, but you can't rectify what happened two decades ago. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk to the two of you about your predictions on Gen Z juries. We'll be right back. LawPay is proud to be the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program and is dedicated to meeting the needs of attorneys across the U.S. With LawPay's user-friendly online payment solution, you can easily and securely accept credit and e-check payments from anywhere at any time. For valuable billing and payment resources and to learn how you can enjoy faster, more reliable payments, visit LawPay.com ABA. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and on today's episode of the APA Journal's Asked and Answered, we are discussing the changes that lawyers are seeing in federal trials, especially in matters involving police misconduct. On today's show, my guests are two Chicago trial lawyers, Ron Safer and James Sotos. So I want to ask you guys, for young adults who are teenagers and in their 20s now, who are living through this pandemic, what do you think their attitudes will be like once they're on jurors towards things like law enforcement and big business and corruption? Uh, okay, I'll, I'll tackle this one, I guess. I, I, I think that, you know, if we put this in the context of, you know, picking juries, 
I think there's always been a perception that there's kind of a sliding scale that just changes throughout the course of somebody's life, that the younger people are typically more liberal and that that gradually changes over the course of somebody's lifetime so that the elderly people are typically more conservative. Obviously, that isn't a straight line, but in terms of generalities, I think that's um, how it's always been approached. And I mentioned before that the issue then is, do the younger people have the strength of their convictions to sway juries? I think that um, a lot of the, you know, anti-corporation, anti-government, anti-law enforcement uh, sentiment that has always more characterized younger people than elderly people has been increased dramatically throughout the last couple of years, um, not only because of the George Floyd case and its aftermath, although that was a significant aspect of it, but also because of COVID and how politically polarized it became and how people started feeling they can't trust the information that they're getting on both sides of the issue. So I think that that's going to, all of those dynamics has contributed to an environment in which younger people are going to be more and more skeptical and suspicious of government, big corporations, which will impact jury trials in ways that we um, have yet to see, but I think we will see. Ron, what do you think? I'm also curious where you do white collar defense, how you think this generation is going to uh, feel about white collar defendants. I think we're seeing that exactly as Jim says, uh, we're seeing a more skeptical jury. We're seeing a jury that uh, wants to be shown everything uh, on television. You know, it better be on a digestible 30 second clip, not in a two hour exploration of an issue. Uh, it better be upfront, easily digestible, easily understandable, because the fact that my, my kids who are in their 20s sit there and watch a football game while playing a video game, while texting their friends, it's uh, you know, not, no one thing holds their attention. So you better be aware of that when you are presenting to a jury. Have either of you, have you had a jury member yet who's under 30? I mean, recently? Just tried a case where we had two jurors, one one was 25, one was 22, uh, in a civil rights case. Was one of them the foreman? <laughs> no, no, neither. Neither was the foreman, but both of them were very articulate during uh, jury selection, very outspoken, just like Jim uh, predicted. There, nobody was, usually you have a, a somebody who's that young, and especially in a big courtroom, and especially with a bunch of old people sitting around asking him questions, they are reticent. Just as Jim said, you know, outspoken, speaking their mind, forcefully, not not shy at all. People have opinions. I'm, I'm curious if you could tell me, were they from the city or the suburbs? One was from the city, one was from okay. the suburbs. How about you, Jim? Have you had a, 
a, a juror under 30 recently? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not that unusual in my trials. You know, when, when you asked the question, I started trying to take a m- mental inventory. And I can think of a number of cases where I've had anywhere from one to two or maybe even three jurors in their 20s. So um, I've seen it quite a bit. Based on, and this wouldn't just be for uh, trials, but for hearings too, do you feel like there's been some technology that's been adopted during the pandemic, during the federal court system that will stick around and maybe makes life a bit easier? We had Zoom testimony in, in our civil case. One of the defendants had moved out of the jurisdiction uh, and, and the judge allowed him to testify by Zoom. Uh, And frankly, uh, although I vigorously opposed it, uh, it it, it was fine. Uh, You have to prepare in advance. You have to send your exhibits. You have to have be on top of it. But it can be done. The Zoom status call is something that I hope will be employed forever. The day that you had to travel to San Francisco for a status for where you're spend two days traveling for a 15 minute status, hopefully that's over or even just wait in court for a status where you can be in your office working. And then when your case is called, you you come to that's that's a great development that I hope will be kept forever. That's the interesting part of all this, because when the pandemic struck, there was, um, I, I won't call it panic, but there was an awful lot of concern, like, how are we going to adjust? And then our profession seemed to have, seems to have adjusted seamlessly. Everybody was thinking kind of like, oh, yeah, well, this, this works. Zoom works. And the problem has been adjusting back. People want to stay with that kind of remote existence. And so it was only a question of time until that found its way into the courtroom. That's why I was really interested when Ron said that it worked with the Zoom testimony during the trial, because there are a lot of challenges, obviously, when you have somebody testifying by Zoom. And the general thinking is that it can impede cross-examination and that the juror might not jurors might not be as engaged. And so there's a lot of reasons to be suspicious about it. So I, I was uh, encouraged to hear you say, Ron, that it, it actually worked well in practice, because I think we are going to see a lot more of it because it wasn't an option before. And so people basically had to be there. And if you didn't have a really, really good excuse, you had to find a way to get into that courtroom and testify. But now with everyone knowing that that option is there, um, courts are probably going to be much more receptive to people's reasons why they can't testify. And um, I don't think it's ever going to go away. That's going to be a hallmark of trials going forward. Do you get the sense that the judges like it too? I, I don't think the judges have to deal with the issues, right? It, it, it makes, you know, their, their interest is getting an efficient uh, and just trial. And so anything that helps that does it. Now, we have to deal with the issues involved in that. We it does take advance, a lot of advanced logistical planning that you don't have otherwise, because you don't want to 
give the other side all of your exhibits a week in advance of an of a cross examination. On the other hand, you must have the witness have access to those exhibits. How do you display both the exhibit and the witness to the jury at the same time? That is a document, say. All of those logistics have to be planned. Judges don't have to really think about that. We do, but they are all superable. I would have told you before I did it, and I cross-examined this defendant. I would have told you that was a, I did tell the judge that that was depriving us of a fair trial. I was wrong. It was almost like having him in the courtroom, not exactly the same thing, but with advanced planning, it was close enough. Well, he said that because they won, Stephanie. (laughs) (laughs) So for your next trial, uh, Ron, when uh, they say you're going to do the cross remotely, you wouldn't make them. I guess it would depend, but you may not make a motion to have them in person. I would be hard pressed to uh, state with the force that I did to the judge that this was going to deprive us of a fair trial, because now, frankly, I know differently. I know it can be done not as effectively, but very close and I was worried for exactly what Jim said. They're not there. Are the juries going to pay attention? But the fact is that one thing that COVID forced and and the fact that the jurors are so spread out is every juror has to have a monitor, their own monitor. So each juror was much closer to the witness than they would have been physically if they were in the courtroom. And and that helped too. So you had a team member watching their expressions while you were watching the witnesses. Yes, and they were they were according to them very attentive to their screens and of course as we just discussed the you know there are there's there are generations of people who get all of their information through the TV screen. They don't read you know the newspapers a bygone thing. They get it through their phone or or the TV, period. So where were you during the cross when it hit you? Oh, this isn't so bad. After I sat down and thought. Okay. Because, <laughs> because <laughs> while I have to cross-examine somebody, I'm tr- obsessed with trying not to fall over <laughs> uh, in front of the jury and things like that. Not really thinking about how how this is going. Well, that leads to my next question. How have the two of you, has it been hard to get used to talking in court? And this is for a remote situation, sitting down as opposed to standing. I feel like with some uh, litigators or people who are just good uh, speakers, that sitting down is really hard for them and when, when they're not, instead of standing up. I mean, it's it's a little confining But I always look at things like that as something that, you know, it's equal to both sides. Everybody, if everybody has to sit, everybody has to sit. And so we'll do it that way. And you adjust. And so I haven't really given it too much thought in all the hearings that I've done and and things of that nature. It's it's different. But, you know, every once in a while you run into a judge who would tell you to sit. So um, (laughs) I haven't found it to be that that big of a deal. 
uh, sitting while arguing is completely different. But I will tell you, I found one time when it was extremely helpful. I did an, uh, an Eighth Circuit argument and by Zoom. And one of the things that I could do that I could not do on the stand, there were two things. One, if it, I was in person, one was I could have all of my papers laid out for the different issues. And then I could reach for one while the question was being asked. And, and it wasn't as obvious and I couldn't do it in that same way in the courtroom. Second, uh, one of the judge, now we were appellant, so we went first and last, but one of the judge judges said, what's the record citation for X? I said, well, judge, I don't have that, but when I stand up for rebuttal, I'll get it to you. Somebody remotely can email it to me and I can then tell the court, oh, it's, it's page such and such. None of those things could happen if you were sitting in the Eighth Circuit courtroom. Do you think that perhaps the appellate arguments might stay remote? I mean, I've only spoken with SCOTUS lawyers about this and I know that they hate it, is my general understanding. But if you just have a three panel, that seems like that would be pretty efficient and not so bad. These judges were spread out across the Midwest. They were not, you know, they didn't have to come together. I think they love it. Yeah, from, from a litigant's perspective, you can see how practically it could work. There is a certain theatrical aspect to what we do. And, um, you know, the idea of not doing that at all is um, I think it takes some of the fun out of it. So I wouldn't want to see that. But beyond that, I, I can see why from a practical perspective, it'll be around going forward. It's really just a question of to what degree. I mean, there was a judge, there has been a judge for a while in the Seventh Circuit who when you stand up to argue, if, if she is in the panel, on the panel, it, you, you're looking at a TV screen for her. Because she, uh, her husband was not well and she was not traveling and she's a wonderful human being. And she uh, participated in these uh, hearings by video, even when we were in the courtroom. So it can be done. Gentlemen, that's everything I have for you today. I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us. It's really fun talking to people who call themselves litigators and actually try cases like recently. It's, it's, been, it's been great. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. Very much appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. And listeners, thank you for joining us. If you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journals Asked and Answered.